evening you'd sing it to us and that over the coming weeks you'd sing it to us and may your spirit prepare our hearts to understand and engage with it and to learn to love you and to live by your ways. Amen. I want to uh, begin uh, with with some music and uh, getting you perhaps thinking uh, about music. In a moment I'm going to ask you what is your number one top favourite song ever? Uh, So you might want to be thinking about that now. Uh, And then I'm going to say, well, why don't you tell the person sat next to you about your number one top uh, top, uh, piece of music or song ever. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine lists their top 500 songs of all time online. Uh, Number one, Respect by Aretha Franklin, 1967. Lots of good things come out of the 60s. Uh, Number two, Fight the Power by Public Enemy, that's uh, 1989. So uh, there we are, those uh, Rolling Stones top two. What about yours? What is your favourite best song ever? Have a little think and then talk to the person sat next to you about your favourite song ever. Right, okay then. Well, you've at least talked about something. (laughs) Whatever it was that you were thinking of, well, um, uh, I guess that quite a few of us uh, may well have chosen a love song as uh, one of our favourites, maybe. To quote the British writer Nick Hornby, he said this, in the end, it's songs about love that endure the best. So you may have, I don't know, someone here might have mentioned Harry Styles, Adore You. Lizzie McAlpine, Ceilings, or, or Lover, Taylor Swift, maybe. Someone, anyone mentioned that one? Uh, All of Me, John Legend. No, you're not laughing at that, so you're not thought of that one. Or, or Something by The Beatles. No, no one go there, only two or three of us will remember that one. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, I don't know where your mind uh, went to, but love songs play a really huge role in our hearts and uh, in, in our culture. Uh, I was going to begin today's uh, uh, Bible talk with saying something really interesting and profound from a classical point of view. I had a conversation with Evelyn upstairs about these matters, and it seems that Evelyn can quote any classical piece of music in kind of like one or two, kind of like <laughs> one or two notes. She said, seriously, there's not a lot she doesn't know. So I thought, well, I'm not going there uh, unless we get Evelyn up to coach us in classical music. But uh, yeah, um, love songs do endure. Song of Songs is perhaps the ultimate love song that has endured more than any other. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, our first point is right there in the title, Song of Songs. That's similar to the Bible phrases like King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Holy of Holies. It's basically saying that this is the ultimate and best song of all songs that have ever been and ever will be. This, in the Bible, is the all-time number one. There's a second-century Jewish theologian called uh, Rabbi Akibar, 
And he connected the Song of Songs with the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies is that place at the very heart of the temple in Jerusalem where God was. And once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy Holies to meet with the Lord God. And he had to do all sorts of sacrifices for the people that he represented, the 12 tribes. And he had them on his chest, on his breastplate, 12 wonderful diamonds representing the people of God. And he had to do all sorts of sacrifices for their sins. And then all sorts of sacrifices for the, his own cleansing. And then he would go there into this most intimate place to meet with the living God. That's what we're talking about with the Holy of Holies. And uh, this uh, rabbi, Akibar, connected Song of Songs with Holy of Holies with these words. Second century, profound what he says. There is nothing to equal the day that the Song of Songs was given. For all the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. Well, that's quite a thing to say, isn't it? Back that up, we want to say. But he did have a point. And I think as we go through the Song of Songs, we'll find that there's plenty of backup to that claim. The Song of Songs is an evocative and a very rich poem. It is all one poem or one song with the different elements to it, different verses to it, different feel to it as it goes. It's kind of like weaves and weaves a whole load of things together. And sometimes you know, what's going on now? It's, it's an amazing piece of poetry. I've struggled with it a bit because I like stories. Stories of a beginning and a middle and an end. It's kind of like it goes all over the shop. And in that sense, it's a wonderful thing to engage with. It comes across fresh. It, inv it invites us to celebrate love, to celebrate beauty and sensuality and intimacy. And yet at the same time, it's steeped with honor and dignity and honesty and boundaries and purity. It is a million, million miles from anything smutty, rude, degrading, pornographic, or sinful. And it will, even though keeping its purity and its holiness, it will say things that we might find embarrassing when it comes to them. And we might find ourselves thinking, did I hear that right? Did the Bible really say that? And often the answer will be, yes, it did, it does. Uh, so we're going on a bit of an adventure over the coming weeks together. Here is the connection between the Song of Songs and the Holy of Holies. The Bible depicts God as our bridegroom and our husband as joy uh, led us in prayer earlier on. And us as his people and his bride and as his wife. Speaking about wives and husbands and marriage, the New Testament, Ephesians 5, says this. This mystery is profound. It's talking about men and women and marriage. But then he goes on. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. And so, through the Song of Songs, this pure, intimate, and sensual love poem, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, invites you invites us, his people, his bride, into his holy of holies to come close and to enter into an intimate relationship with him. He longs for us to celebrate the goodness of his love, the beauty of his passion, 
and the absolute tenderness of his presence. Song of Songs is for you. It's for you if you are a teenager. And, uh, you know, this morning we had a number of teenagers, uh, 13, 14-year-olds listening to what I'm going to say with you to you this evening. It's for them. Folks like that who are trying to figure out what's going on in their bodies and are confused by it. It's for people who are born earlier, if I can put it that way, who are in midlife, are going through changes in their body again, which are just as confusing. This song is for you. It's for you if you are single. It's for you if you are divorced. It's for you if you are broken, hurt. It's for you if you're happily married. It's for you if you're strugglingly married. The Lord Jesus invites you, invites us as a church to personally call for him and to fall before him. To fall for him, to fall before him. Verse 1 says it's the song of songs, <clears throat> which is Solomon's. Three main characters in the song. There's a man. Is it Solomon or is it Shepherd? Uh, I, I, you know, some people think it is Solomon. The the, uh, the translators for the ESV name it in the title, Song of Solomon. Uh, and uh, he is often portrayed as a shepherd. Or is it shepherd that she's actually portraying as a king? Make your own mind up. Uh, I, I'm sw I, you know, I keep swinging between the two, actually. And I've not made my mind up yet. There you go. Be honest about that. There's the woman. She's young and from the country. And there are the friends, her friends, other friends, they kind of act as a chorus. Uh, they act also as an audience through whom we, the readers, are invited into the experience. This isn't just something we listen to. This is a book that we experience, the Song of Songs. Secondly, her desire, verses 2 to 4. Uh, a moment comes in most modern love stories when after there have been misunderstandings, then they've begun to fall for one another. Then they've fallen out with each other because another weird misunderstanding has crept up again. At last, they fall into each other's arms and the moment arrives for true love's kiss. Normally at the end of the film, not the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs puts it right there, front and central, in verse 2, let him kiss me. Uh, this is not the kiss of peace, it's not the kiss of friendship. It's not on her cheek. It's not on her hand. It's full-on passion with the kisses of his mouth. It puts that image right smack there in front of us. Tanya and I have a, an album of photos of our wedding. We've got a, one which is much smaller with lots of photos in it. We've got one with some quite large photos in it. There is in that photo album quite a large photo of us leaving the church, uh, sitting in the car and we have a kiss. It, it's, it's frightening. It's large. Tanya said to me on the way to church this morning, you're not going to put a picture of that up on the screen, are you? See, we don't do it. I mean, it, it's halfway through the album. I mean, it would freak our kids out if we put it as the first photo. Freak me out. Well, there it is right there up front. She's intoxicated with the thought of him. And we see that in her next words. For your love is better than wine. 
And the friends pick it up in verse 4 as well. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. The Bible says we must be very careful about alcohol, not to drink too much of it. But the Bible is very positive about wine. Wine is to be enjoyed. It's delicious. It's heady. It's celebratory. And I think that the way it's being used here, like love, it's intoxicating. But your love is better than wine. Your love is delightful and intoxicating in all these wonderful ways. And he's not being sinful and he's not being smutty here. She's not. It, the, the Bible's not being. Verse 3 goes on. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. She's physically attracted to him, including the smell of him. She fancies him. And that's very important. That's a very important indeed ingredient in romance and marriage. And so clearly is personal hygiene. He smells good. Some of us might need to take that on board. All right, if you're going to go out on a date, have a shower. And seriously, don't use aftershave or perfume to try and cover up the BO. Don't work. Personal hygiene right here in the Bible. So clearly, though, actually is character. Your name is oil poured out. And she's talking about fragrant oils here. His character is that there's an aroma about him. He's, he, you know, he, there's something about it. It's gone out. People know he's joyful, good, honest, noble, generous, and kind. He's like that guy that Katie told us about, that older guy that she worked with in the team. Someone actually just safe to be with. A good, good person. Uh, you know, th that's what made this guy in, in the story, in the, the poem here, famous, therefore, virgins, that is, other uh, unmarried women, love you. He's respected in the wider in the wider community. Others have smelt the perfume of his character. That's the language that's going on here. That's to pray for, isn't it? The Bible talks about physical attraction being a significant ingredient in romantic relationship. It talks about character being significant in romantic relationships too. These are things to pray for. These are things to aspire to as well. Verse 4, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought us into his chambers, brought me into his chambers. She clearly takes the initiative with romance and intimacy. The Bible doesn't have a problem with that. Our culture in Britain sometimes has had a problem with women taking the initiative. In the 50s, generally women didn't take initiative on anything. But here... Unashamedly, she's taken the lead, and the Bible is really happy with that. Uh, and um, the initiative with romance, the initiative with intimacy. Uh, there are lessons to learn here about romance and relationship and courtship and marriage. But there's this other dimension as well to the Song of Songs. Jesus said, John 5, verse 39, the scriptures, including the Song of Songs, bear witness about me. This is about him and us. In relationship, Jesus, our bridegroom. This is speaking about her desire for her man. It's also speaking about our desire for our Lord Jesus Christ, our divine lover. Intimacy is something we long for. Some of us have experienced it and lost it. 
some of us have been betrayed. All of us have been broken in some way or other relationally. Some of us have been badly hurt, sexually abused. Some of us are just confused. <clears throat> we all, I guess, experience guilt and shame in these areas. We've sinned and we've been sinned against. It's time to express our desire for the Lord Jesus. His song is for us all. His kiss of loving intimacy that brings healing, that brings forgiveness and cleansing. At the end of our service today, I'm going to quote the song we're going to sing. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Verse 2. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Time to design and receive poetic language, the kiss of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know his healing. To know his tenderness. And having received the kiss of his love afresh, to pray and to desire, verse 4, draw me afterwards. That is, take me with you, Lord Jesus. And to be earnest about it, let us run. And to tell him that you desire his matchless person, his character in your life. The aroma of his character is delightful more than anything else. The king has brought me into his chambers. Phrase goes on. As Psalm 84, 1 and 2 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, desire, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh Sing for joy in the living God. An invitation. Her desire, our desire. Thirdly, her insecurity. In verses 5 and 6, uh, the woman speaks to the friends, to the others, the daughters of Jerusalem, who seem to be the wealthy elite in the capital. She compares herself with them, and as a result, she experiences uh, some self-doubt in verses 5 and 6. I'm very dark. But lovely is a sense in which her beauty must shine through, she hopes, in some way. But then she likens herself to the tents of Kedar, which were Bedouin-style tents made of very black goatskin. What's going on in her heart is clear by what she says next. Do not gaze at me, she says. That is, stop staring at me. Because I'm dark, because the sun, because the sun has looked upon me. Uh, what's going on here? It's not, it's not a racial thing. It's not an ethnic thing. It's not even a fashion thing. The changes uh, come and go with fashion from place to place and time to time. Sometimes us pale-skinned folks who like to go in the sunbathe to try to get a bit darker. And sometimes darker-skinned friends uh, want to use various lotions to become a bit paler. It's not talking about that kind of thing here. 
what's happening here actually is social. It's financial. She's been out in the sun a lot because she's had to work whilst the wealthy city women haven't had to do a day's work in their lives. Verse 6, my mother's sons were angry with me, probably her half-brothers, which indicates a painful, broken home somewhere along the line. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. They forced her out. Men. Listen to what Katie said about the Barbie movie. Her brothers forced her out. I don't know if they went themselves. Did they work? She went out first, forced to walk out, work, work in the fields. But my own vineyard herself, she's not been able to keep. Like the city women. Spend, spend their lives pampering themselves. She's been in the fields all day, every day, working. And so the sun has darkened her skin. And she's insecure before the other women as she engages with this. Insecurity is our experience in the 21st century. And the Bible here speaks right into it. Isn't it amazing that this ancient song understands and relates to self-doubt that we experience? Comparing ourselves with others on social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. We keep on having to ask ourselves, am I enough? We worry about our complexion. We worry about our teeth, our noses, our lips and our hair, our body image. I've always been worried about my teeth. Got a big gap between the first two. So, so you know, I, I've never really learned how to smile, do a great big teethy grin. Uh, and if you look at some of the photographs of me and my family, you'll find one particular daughter in some of the photos, she's reaching over and grabbing my face and pushing it into a smile to make my teeth go. Dad, smile properly. We all have those sort of insecurities, don't we? The woman here in the Song of Songs, her self-doubt, she pleads with her loved one. She yearns to be with him, to hear his reassurances. She needs, she needs to know where to find him, verse 7. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pastor your flock. He's a shepherd, isn't he? Or is he the king? I don't know. Is it a shepherd who she thinks of as a king, or is it a king actually, you know, who's actually done some shepherding? Where you make it lie down at noon, where are you? Where are you in the flock that, you, that you're tending? She doesn't want to go from field to field, mixing potentially unsafely with other men. For why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? And we come straight into the Barbie movie and what Katie said earlier on. And Barbie and Ken, you know, roller skating in this world when they move to it. And he's free and doesn't notice what's going on. Whereas she feels a sense of violence. That's what's going on here. She doesn't want to go into a place where people will wolf whistle her. I, I mean, I, I was really struck by this as a male and as a dad with our three daughters when they were teenagers. I think I, I was really shocked when I found that my daughters were walking home from school and being wolf-whistled or vans driving by, people shouting at them. They weren't not even 16 yet. Men, let's commit in our hearts tonight to treat women with dignity. 
absolute honour. She's looking for him, and she's looking for him alone. Why? Well, it's no accident that he is pictured as a shepherd. The Bible, the Bible image of leadership, well, their shepherd, supposed to bring to mind someone who's hardworking and, and tender and caring yet strong and courageous, fighting off dangers like wild animals. That's the kind of person she looks to in her insecurity. Who do you look to in yours? I think we must speak to reassure one another, to build one another up in the family of God, in our own families, in our households, a student group in our gospel teams, to help free one another from the deep sense of inadequacy we all have at various points and in different ways. We need to do this parent to child. We need to do it friend to friend. We need to do it colleague to colleague. We need to do it husband to wife and wife to husband. But we must also go to the one from whom ultimate security comes and dignity comes. The one to whom this all points. The one the Bible calls the good shepherd. The great shepherd. The Lord Jesus. To hearing his voice and what he has to say to you in your insecurity to me. And what does he say? We'll come to that in a moment. Let's come back to what the shepherd said. King in, uh, in the poem, in the song says to his beloved. So we move to uh, his reassurance. Verses 8 to 10. If you do not know, she's, he's telling her where, how to find him. If you do not know, oh beautiful among women. I mean, that's, that's right there, isn't it? Not a reassurance. If you do not know, oh beautiful among women, following the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. So he's not playing hide and seek. Uh, and uh, he guides her straight to where he is, calling her, oh most beautiful of women, reassuring her. And verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with the ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Well, comparing her to a horse doesn't cross well into our culture. And I was thinking about my Bible talk this morning, sat in our living room, as I often do, well, I ever do Sunday mornings, listening to Classic FM, when our WhatsApp for our gospel team suddenly sprang alive. And Claire Shepherd, well, Claire, sorry, Smith Keery, was uh, was right there saying, Tim, thinking about you tonight. And she put this picture coming up on the screen. That is what you conjure up if you follow literalistically every metaphor and analogy and picture in the Song of Songs and create a picture. I mean, they are a neck like a tower. You end up with something ugly. So it. Let's let's get rid of it. Turn off that straight away. <clears throat> Someone did say, "Look, we well, you should have put a trigger warning before you put that up." That was, I think it was you, Joy, wasn't it? Said we should put. Uh, you said you said about putting. Sorry, I should have put a trigger warning up. <laughs> so I should have put you a trigger warning as well tonight. Anyway, listen. We need to think carefully about what's being said. He's not saying you look like a horse. Clearly, he's not. 
he's saying something else. He's saying something quite remarkable. We think about it. Uh, and uh, here's how one, puts it, uh, one uh, writer puts it. A mare, that is a female horse, loose among Pharaoh's royal chariots. His chariots were only pulled by stallions. It's saying a mare, female horse, loose among Pharaoh's royal stallions would create intense excitement amongst the stallions. That's what it's saying. He is saying, you are a woman of standout beauty. You are beauty personified. He's actually saying more, if we really engage with the metaphor of the language here. He's actually saying, you've got sex appeal. That's what he's saying. Uh, and then uh, the chorus, the, the, the friends around say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And really say, let's adorn this beauty personified. And that's what's going on here. So what does the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, say to you? Here's what he says. Here's how you ought to pray to him, how I ought to pray to him. Psalm 139, you know these words well. Right now, you, we all need to be just praying that the Spirit would help us speak these truly to our Lord. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You're beautiful. God made you exactly as you are. DNA, genetics, parenting led you to be who you are. And he loves you. He loves the created you. Yes, he loves you in Jesus, but that kind of like gives us a let off the hook. Well, you would love me because, you, you know, you've saved me and you love me because I'm now in Christ. And my father loves me because when he looks at me, all he sees is Jesus. Hmm. Well, it's true, but he also sees you. The echo of the Bible. God looking at his creation and seeing it was good. Seeing it was very good. I just want to add something here. I mean, I, I as a teenager... Uh, I, I had various levels of self-doubt, and I remember we uh, going on a a, um, a youth house group. It must have been about twelve or thirteen, uh, and uh, the guy who led it was the editor of a big youth magazine back in the in the seventies called Buzz Magazine. And uh, looking around the room, no one remembers that. So there we are, Tim. You're on your own. So uh, he was the editor, and and he was just encouraging us to know that God loved us in how he had made us. And he encouraged us all the next morning before we came down for breakfast at this, this you know, house party to look at ourselves in the mirror as we were brushing our teeth and to tell ourselves that the Lord made me as I am and he loves me as I am. To believe it. Believe it to be true. And I did that as I was brushing my teeth. Still struggled a bit afterwards. Got to pray for God's Spirit to speak this truth to us. Ephesians 5 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. That's you. That's us. The Lord created you physically the way you are. He's recreating you and us spiritually with standout beauty. That's what Ephesians 5 says. It's true. And we must listen to it. And we've got to fight those moments where we say, well, you would say that to me. We're encouraging each other. You would say that to me. You're my mum. Mums do say that because they're mums. But they're also right. And speak like idiots. This is Jesus. He is truth. That's all he is, is truth and light. And he's saying this. Leave him. Don't say, oh, you would say that. Yes, he would. He wants to. And it's true. May we be reassured as we hear and receive the Lord Jesus' words to us today. Number five, their shared sensuality. Uh, that's uh, verse 12, chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 7. In verses 12 to 14, we move from visual images to the evocative aroma of perfume. She says, while the king was on his couch, <coughs> the king was your shepherd, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Her smell wafted towards him. That's what's being said here. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Uh, he is uh, intimately close to her heart. The, as it were, the language here, she's saying, the metaphor is saying, the smell of him, as it were, drifts to her nose from between her breasts. It's very sensual language. And then from evocative aromas, we move to rapid, loving banter. Verse 15, he says, Beloved, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. In the Song of Songs, dove symbolizes gentleness, purity, loyalty, character. She is a beautiful person, beautiful character. She replies, uh, verse 16, behold, you are beautiful. He says, you're beautiful. She says, you're beautiful too, my beloved, truly delightful. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And he says in verse 2, a lily among brambles. You're not just any old, you stand out. So is my love among young women. To which he says, verse 3, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. It is getting towards sensual eros now. It's a delightful piece of positive banter that's going on, especially in comparison to some of our banter, our work banter or our shared home banter which can be inflammatory gossipy and humiliating so easy isn't it for sweet communion and wonderful conversation between close friends and lovers for banter of a beautiful sort to become bickering one-upmanship and putting the other down let's determine with the lord's help to use our words and our conversation to build up others, our loved ones, others in our church family, 
there's more. The flowers, the trees, the garden imagery is so deeply significant in the Bible. The Bible begins in a garden. It ends in a city that's described more like a garden than a city in Revelation. Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden. They were naked and they knew no shame. Deep intimacy between them and God. They experienced deep communion, conversation with one another and with God. And it was all lost. But it is restored to us in and through the Lord Jesus, to whom you now stand as a lily among brambles. That's what he thinks of you. Later, it's going to be that phrase, from the, from the, 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 the husband, the, the man, to the woman, to us, apple of my eye. Have you ever thought, God, thinking of you in that way? We need to pray God's spirit brings his word, these words to truth in our hearts. He says these things to us in his word, and we need to tell him what we think of him. It's loving banter. Here's a thought. Here's a prayer experiment. How might your prayers over the coming weeks develop a loving banter with the Lord Jesus, where you hear what he says to you, and you reply to him what you think of him? That's an interesting thing to engage with, isn't it? Back to the lovers here. In the final section of today's passage, we are moving towards the end here. She continues to speak, uh, and the sensuality of the language, really, it's increasingly erotic. Whilst remaining absolutely pure and holy, verses 4 to 7, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or all the does of the field that you do not, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Basically saying, don't awaken erotic, sexual sensuality the physical too soon we're going to end focusing on that final little sentence timing is crucial in every relationship every relationship involves some coordination or other from walking along a path together to sharing an umbrella together to going out together to being engaged and becoming one in marriage it takes timing and coordination. And uh, marriage has at its heart sexual intimacy. According to the Bible, that is the only place for it between a man and a woman in lifelong marriage. Love, and in particular erotic love, is like a tender plant. It can't be rushed. It mustn't be rushed. It must be cared for. Here's how one person put it. And when I read this, I thought that is so brilliant because it just takes it out of the realm of you must do this. This is how far you can go. This is how far you can't go out of rules, regulations and all that kind of stuff. It just makes sense. And it's beautiful. And you realize, oh, if I get that wrong, oh, no. It spoils. It harms. Let me quote. When people try to rush things, sexual love, it is like a child 
who decided to try and help a butterfly out of its chrysalis. It doesn't work. We see that, don't we, straight away. Our culture still shares, I think, a sense of this wisdom. Uh, and I thought I was going to quote Phil Collins from 1982 right now, but discovered it was the Supremes. In uh, 1966, having had my conversation with Evelyn, I was double-checking all of my facts with all of my music. I remember Mama said, and I, I, I nearly started singing it this morning, I started feeling Phil Collins now, you know. I remember Mama said, you can't hurry, love. No, you'll just have to wait. She said, love, don't come easy. I'm, I'm about to sing it. Love, don't come easy. It's a game of give and take. Patience. Patience. Are you still young teenager? I said this morning we had quite a few who are still at school, 13, 14 year olds hearing this. Maybe you're single and you are longing to marry. So I'm going to voice that up front in our evening service. Maybe you're married and you're struggling. Maybe you're broken, you've been abused. For us all, this is a call for patience. Patience wherever we are. It's a fruit of Jesus' character in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit. And you, we know Jesus. And as we know him, we, we live in the now and the not yet in our lives. And there's that sense just on the, on the human, on the physical, on the relational level, where we are called to be patient. And there's a sense in which we need to be patient with each other and to walk with each other when our hearts are yearning. Yearning for love, yearning for marriage. When someone's been broken, they, and, and harmed and, or abused. They need people who will, they trust and have confidence in and who will walk with them patiently for months and months and maybe even years. We need to be that kind of a community. Patient to walk with each other, to speak tenderness to each other, to bring the healing words of Jesus to each other. And sometimes we don't believe it. First time, second time, tenth time. We need to hear it again and again and again. Patient. Patient with each other. We also, thinking of where this is ultimately fulfilled, we walk now with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Song of Songs invites us to experience and to nurture a deeper intimacy with him today. But we're also called to have the spirit of patience in our hearts and in our lives as we wait for his return, which is where Joy took our prayers earlier on. When we will see him face to face, when we will be with him in the holy of holies of the new heaven and the new earth, when in our experience the Song of Songs will find its ultimate and perfect fulfillment.
the song of songs. Sing it in his presence. Let's spend a moment of quiet. And I'm not going to pray now. I'm just going to encourage us to pray that God's spirit would be present in our hearts, in our church family, and would speak those things that we mustn't forget, the truths that we need to know, speak the intimacy of Jesus into our hearts and lives. So a moment of quiet, and uh, when our musicians think it's appropriate, we're going to come and lead us in that. My song, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean, but poetic language of the kiss in it. <laughs>